If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. From coast to coast and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio around. Online with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander. Here at WMCK.FM, the keyboard. WLDJ FM 107.5 Newcastle, Pennsylvania. You can also find it at us at HOFMRadio.com. And we're also at Delmarva Talk Radio out of Delmarva, Delaware. And of course, we're on Fayette TV Channel 77 in Fayette County. So I hope everything's going fine for you on this wonderful day. Um, interesting program tonight because we're going to talk about history, especially World War II history, and we're going to be talking with the um, president of the three the three hundred sixth or three hundred sixth. Let me do that again. Bomb Group Historical Association, the author of the book "Shot Down: The True Story of Pi- Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B seventeen Susan Ruth," and uh, actually, it's Howard's son, and Howard's son. Uh, Steve is with me on the phone line right now. Steve, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks a lot. I am so glad you're able to join me this evening. Um, so I was I was looking through what you sent to me about the book. Now, what year was the book written? Uh, actually, it was uh, published in 2014, so it's been out a little while, but okay. it's, uh, it, it still does, is doing very well. So what got you to write the book? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, growing up, I, I knew the basics of my dad's World War II history. Okay. I knew he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed in England with the 8th Air Force. His plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister, who was one year old at the time that he went overseas. Oh, okay. And he flew, and he flew bombing missions over uh, Europe. And on February 8th of 1944, his plane was shot down. And he was missing in action for seven months, but he evaded capture and eventually made it back to England. But it wasn't until I retired in 2009 that I really had the time to delve into my dad's war history in more detail. And at that time, (laughs) I had no uh, intention of writing a book. My parents had kept a lot of material from the war years, and I just wanted to go through that, organize it, learn more about it. And there were two things that were really important. significant. One was a diary that my dad wrote while he was missing in action in Belgium about his plane being shot down, which is absolutely riveting, which is in the book. Okay. And the other were all the, uh, uh, were the letters that my, uh, my dad had written to my mother while he was uh, missing, while he was stationed in England 
before his plane got shot down, and those letters were absolutely fascinating. And I just became fascinated with the story of my dad and his crew. It became my passion. And uh, three years into my research, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique and so compelling that people needed to know about it, read about it. So I decided to write a book. So explain to the audience what happened, because, um, as I said, I watched the video with your dad that you did in 2000, that you shared in 2013. And this was his eighth mission when he was shot down, correct? That is correct. And yeah, he was. How many crew members were on on the plane with him? Because he had himself, his gunner, and was it two or three other people? Well, actually, a B-17 had a 10-man crew. Okay. There were four officers, uh, the bombardier, the navigator, and then the two pilots. My dad was the first pilot, and as such, the commander of the plane and the crew, and then the the co-pilot. And then there were six enlisted men or non-commissioned officers who were mainly gunners. So there was it was a ten-man crew. Okay. So when the when the plane went down, how did it? How who who shot it? How did it get shot down? And what happened after it was shot down? Okay. Uh, well, it was on a bombing mission to Frankfurt, Germany, uh, where my dad uh, said the plane. Uh, dropped their bombs successfully, but their Bombay doors got hit by anti-aircraft fire, flak, and they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the plane and they lost airspeed and they fell behind the formation who was heading back to Europe uh, to go back to their bases. And they were singled out by two German Focke-Wolf fighters. Um, like, you know, uh, wolves or lions, you know, coming in on prey. Uh, they they attacked the Susan Ruth, and in the ensuing air battle, uh, the Susan Ruth was shot down. Two of the ten crew members were killed in the plane. Okay, and the other eight crew mem- the other eight crew members were able to bail out successfully. Okay, but both those German Focke-Wolf fighters were shot down at the same time. Uh, one piloted by Siegfried Merrick uh, crashed, and he was killed. Uh, the other was piloted by Hans Berger, who was able to bail out, and he made it through the war. Now, there were two people from the B-17 that, sur- that, that, that survived after everything was said and done, correct? Your father came out of it. The, um, the uh, oh, heck, I just forgot what it was. Uh, his, uh, oh, that just escaped me. But there were three gentlemen captured by the Nazis, correct? And then there was another gentleman that was also came down that they did not get captured. Yeah, of the 10-man crew, five of the crew uh, survived and came home. Five of them did not. Okay. Two were killed in the plane. Um, as you mentioned, three uh, uh, evaded capture for about a couple months, but they were... Uh, Captured, but they were were captured by the Germans and, and shot. Uh, my dad and another uh, crewman, the tail gunner, that's it, the Bill tail gunner, ev- evaded capture. Although they were not together at all. Okay. And then three others became prisoners of war. So something different happened to each guy. Okay. Because the interesting thing is, the three guys that were interrogated, then basically taken into the woods and shot in the back of their head, um, was just just to think about it is just horrific. And the Belgium, there were um, a couple of people that Belgians that actually saw your dad who was stuck in a tree, 
and they actually got him out of the tree? Yes. Uh, well, you just covered quite a bit of ground right then. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, actually, uh, the, uh, the, the three of my dad's crew, they actually eventually met up with five other downed U.S. Airmen. Okay. Um, from three other B-17s. And they were hiding in the woods, uh, being helped by Belgium uh, partisans, uh, members of the Belgium underground. And uh, a Belgium collaborator uh, told the Nazis about him, and the, the Nazis came with a and surrounded the, this hut that they were staying in in the woods uh, near the Chimay, Belgium, which was just north of the uh, French border. And they, they captured them. Uh, they took them back into a schoolhouse in Chimay, which is actually still there today, interrogated them. And then they took them back out the woods and they shot all eight men. Wow. So yeah. how, did, how did your dad evade capture then? Well, by that, uh, he was the last one out of the plane, you know, kind of being the captain or the, of the plane. Uh, he made sure all the other crew were, were out before uh, he bailed out. Okay. He came down uh, in some woods uh, just uh, in the little village of Mackinwas, which was right at the French-Belgian border. And his parachute got hung up in the, some trees. And as, as you mentioned, a couple young Belgian men uh, came to his rescue before the the Germans got to them. Uh, this this occurred in early afternoon. They uh, went back to the farmhouse, got a ladder and a rope, held it down the tree, and they told them to stay put because they thought it was too dangerous for the Belgian or for to try to move them during daylight with okay. the German patrols combing the area. So my dad, you know, hunkered down, and then that night they came back and got him and took him. Uh, actually, the two Belgian men were named uh, Henri Franken and Raymond Durvan. Took him to the Javan uh, farmhouse. He stayed there one night. They thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with those German patrols combing the area. So the next night, a Belgium customs officer, uh, his name was Paul Tilken, came and got him on a tandem bicycle and uh, to try to take him to a, a safer location. Uh-huh. And they they headed out that night, and it's kind of one of the interesting stories that's in the book uh, my dad had some wounds in one leg, uh, so he could only pedal with, with his good leg. And they came to a hill, and they weren't able to pedal up the hill any longer. So they started. They got off the bike and started pushing it up the hill. And when they got to the top of the hill, there was this cabaret, little cafe. Uh, the lights were on. The loud music was playing. People were laughing, uh, talking loudly. And all of a sudden, two German officers come out of the cafe with a their arms around these two young girls uh-huh. and one of them comes up to my dad and asks him for a light for a cigarette. Well, my dad can't speak German or, or French at that point, And he was petrified, but Paul, uh, till can the Belgian customs officer, uh, knew what they were talking about. He lit their cigarette and they let him go on their way. My dad said these Germans were so drunk and so interested in these two girls. They didn't really pay too much attention. <laughs> To these two, you know, yokels pushing the bike up the right. road. <laughs> so, so your dad's there. I mean, he's he's basically MIA for seven months. Did he try to yep. get communication back to your mother at the time, or was that just too um, dangerous to do? Well, he actually wrote three letters 
uh, to my mother, but they never got to her. Okay. Um, so he had no communication. Uh, you know, that was really stressful on my dad. You know, here he's, you know, his plane was attacked. It's on fire. He has to bail out. He comes down in a foreign country. has no idea where he is. He can't communicate with uh, uh, the U.S. military. Uh, doesn't know what happened to his other buddies on right. the crew. And he's being helped by uh, these Belgian people who are two complete strangers. He has, they can't communicate at that point because they don't know English. He doesn't know French. He has a little French-English dictionary that was in an escape, an evasion kit that he could kind of use. But uh, – and any one of these Belgian people could be uh, collaborators and turn them over to the Gestapo at, at any given time. So that that was uh, <laughs> uh, very stressful for my dad. After Paul uh, Tilkan, the uh, Belgian customs officer, came and got him on the uh, tandem bicycle, he, they took him to another place. And after that, he was moved around from place to place to place. You might stay one night in one location or maybe six weeks in another location. It all depended on how brave the Belgian people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to, to stay there. What I thought was interesting is hearing your dad say that, that it all depended on how how they how the makeup of the family was. If they were brave, they would keep them there. But if they were skitterish, they would move them quickly. And in and, and, and my way of thinking, I would think if someone wasn't brave, they would try to hunker him down as long as they possibly could instead of risking moving him. But again, that's just a very interesting way to think about it. The other thing I thought was interesting is all depended on how much money the families had if they were able to buy food from the black market to be able to feed not only the family but for him because if they didn't have a lot of money, they could be eating potatoes for five nights. <laughs> That, that's exactly right, uh, because, uh, you know, Belgium was occupied by the the Nazis then, so all the food was ra- – everything was rationed, and uh, it was pretty lean times. And the bread, you know, had sawdust put in it. You know, it was pretty pretty, pretty bad eating, but uh, people had a little bit of money. You know, they could buy uh, things off the black market, uh-huh. and my dad said they were they – were, the, the the people who hit him were just unbelievably brave people, and they let him sleep in their bed. They slept on the floor. They gave him the you know the majority of the food that they had. Just wonderful people, and the people who hit my dad and any downed airman for that matter were unbelievably brave people. I mean, they risked not only their lives but the lives of their family and friends because if the German secret police, the Gestapo, found out about it. They would be arrested, tortured, and either sent to concentration camps or shot. Right. And some of the Belgium helpers who uh, aided my dad and other members of his crew did meet that fate. Um, So when your dad was involved with the underground, what did he do with them? Well, for several months, you know, he he was just hidden, you know, going from place to place. Uh, And there were several times that uh, he was almost discovered by the Gestapo, uh, which are described in the book. But finally, he got tired of hiding. Um, word came that uh, the Allied armies had landed at Normandy uh, on D- D-Day, June mm-hmm. 6 of 1944. And so he decided to get back into the fight. Unlike most airmen, before he went into the Air Force, he was in the Army for a year. 
Okay. So he had a year's worth of infantry training and knew how to fight on the ground, and he decided to get back into the fight. So he wanted to join the French resistance, and his Belgian helpers tried to talk him out of it because <laughs> it was so dangerous. He could either be killed you know, fighting against the Germans, or if the Germans captured him, he would have been shot on the spot right. as being a terrorist. But he'd, uh, he talked to one of his uh, helpers, Amy uh, Cools was her name. They, they rode bicycles over the fr- Belgian border into northern France. And he joined up with a unit of the French resistance. They were called the Mackie. They were ragtag uh, independent guerrilla groups located all over uh, France. And his group had about 20 uh, members in it, led by a French lieutenant who had, been, who had escaped from a German uh, prisoner of war camp. And they harassed the Germans. <laughs> it sounds, and I hate to make this this uh, comparison, but it sounds to me a little bit like the TV program Hogan's Heroes to a point, because of these of the resistance and these these people involved with trying to undermine everything the Germans did or the Nazis did during this period of time, because they were dis they were. Um, messing up communication they were um they were getting in in the middle of things so that the nazis could not move forward is basically what their job was correct right right although hogan's hero was a comedy right well that's what i said i hate i hate no humor in what uh, i hate to make resistance i I hate to make that comparison but that's the first thing that pops into my mind when you talk about all this stuff going on and i'm going that sounds somewhat familiar because of of their of their disruption of the whole of the whole thing, and that's what I hear whenever you talk about it, and also your dad talked about it in the video that that's what their goal was is to disrupt the Germans and basically or the Nazis and basically just try to do whatever they can to stale progress until the U.S. or the the U.S. military forces got there to actually come in and save everybody. Exactly. They would disrupt communications, sabotage railroad lines, assassinate German officers, uh, attack German convoys. And there's a number of instances in the book that describe different encounters that uh-huh. uh, my dad's uh, uh, group that he was with had with the Germans. They got their instructions from the British uh, through coded messages over the BBC radio, and they were supplied by airdrops uh, from the uh, from the British. And my dad said that the information that they provided, the the resistance, was unbelievably accurate. If they said a German convoy was coming down this road on this day at this time, sure enough, they would be there. And that was all a result of the British uh, cracking the the German um, code, the Enigma code, and knowing everything that the Germans were up to. And that just fascinates me that the, the British had enough confidence in the resistance that they would give them those secrets. I mean, for goodness sake, they could be working for the other side and saying they're working for the Brits and, and actually be counterintuitive to the whole situation. Well, that was possible. That was possible. Yeah, you're you're right. Um, So you're, 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 so your dad's behind, behind the lines. He's working with, he's working with the resistance. He's, he's moving forward to this, did he ever think he was going to meet up with the U.S. forces again? Well, that's that's an excellent question. Normally, when uh, the underground came across downed uh, Allied airmen, they tried to get them back to England through various escape routes. Okay. They were 
set up, uh, it would go down through France, over the Pyrenees into Spain, and then out through British-controlled Gibraltar. But something always went wrong trying to get my dad out, and it was very frustrating for him and very demoralizing for him. And that was another reason why he decided to join up with the French resistance. And, you know, he, 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 as I mentioned, he knew that the Allies had landed at Normandy and that they would be coming up uh, through France after D-Day. And sure enough, uh, one day, actually, September 2nd, 1944, seven months after he was, his plane was shot down, word came that there were Allied troops in a little nearby village of Trelon, France. And so he w- walked into town, into the town square, went up to a army major, actually was an element of Patton's Third Army, which had come up through France after D-Day, and he identified himself, and they interrogated him to make sure that he was who he said he was. Right. And uh, he got a he hopped a ride on a, a convoy taking German prisoners to Paris, and then from Paris caught a, a transport back to England to his base, and then finally was able to send a telegram, a Western uh, Union telegram, to my mother saying he was fiddle fit as a fiddle. <laughs> so that was a happy day for my for my mother. I could tell you. I'm sure. I'm sure it was because I can't imagine. Um, hearing these things and for seven months fearing that he was dead and then all of a sudden getting a message saying, no, I'm perfectly fine. I mean, I'm sure she had a, hundreds of thousands of questions just to ask him because she probably did assume that he was not, he, that he, he died in the crash. Yeah, they, uh, well, yeah, it was very stressful on my mother because not only did she have Susan Ruth, who was one year old, but my other sister, Nancy, was born while my dad was missing in action. So she also had an infant baby oh, wow. girl. And, and seven months not hearing. Wow. Yeah, that... You know, it, it, I mean, think how tough that was. And uh, there's a lot of excerpts from letters, not only from my father and other members of the crew, but a number of them from relatives of the crew, either mothers or, or wives or sweethearts, that they sent back and forth why they, after the plane got shot down, which are really emotional, really makes it personal, you know, trying to, to, to keep each other's hopes up, you know, praying that their loved one would come back. But, and five of them did, but five of them did not. To me, it's just amazing story to hear it and hearing it the way you tell it, because it sounds like this was just, once you got started, you couldn't stop. You had to tell your father's stories. Now, the videos that you have online, when did you shoot those videos with your father? Uh, the video, uh, there's a, quite a few videos on my, my, my wet, wet website, uh, not just of my dad, but uh, that are pretty interesting from other uh, World War II veterans. But my dad was uh, interviewed in 2004. Okay. That he talked about talked about that. Um, as I mentioned, I knew, you know, the basics of growing up, uh, but it really didn't become personal for me until, uh, 1994 when I made my, I've been to Belgium six times. And my first trip was in 1994. My wife and I accompanied my parents to the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Belgium and of my dad's plane being shot down. And then by, with my dad, I went to these various houses and farms where he was hidden 
Yeah, and met some of his helpers, and that's really when it became personal for me. Well, that that was just going to ask you that is if he kept um, in touch with anybody from the the resistance or the people that helped him, um, just just to keep that connection, because I'm sure that um, they were very very vital to his life at that period of time. Absolutely. And he did stay in contact with people, the people that he stayed with for a lengthy period of time. Okay. And uh, they they uh, exchanged letters, you know, Christmas cards. And like most World War II veterans, my dad didn't talk a lot about the war. Yes. Until 1989 and a Belgium organization, the Belgium American uh, Foundation, which was formed by Dr. Paul Delahaye. Uh, was created to honor and remember the U.S. troops and, and servicemen that freed his country from Nazi occupation. They erected a memorial to my dad and his crew in the little village of Mackinwaz in 1989. And my dad and the other three members of the crew that were still living at the time went over for the dedication with their wives. And there my dad was reunited you know, you know, physically with all those people that hit him during the war, revisited those places where he was hidden. And that brought it all back, and he started talking about it a okay. lot after that. I fight, and then you said a lot of people that, that, that fought through World War II do not talk about it. And my grandfather was a Marine, and prior to him passing, I've asked, I asked him about it. And unfortunately, I would never get any any information from him because he told me that it was something that if I wanted to know about it, I could read about it. And there was enough information. He just didn't want to relive it. And I thought that was very interesting because of of the time period that they went, they did a job, they came home and they didn't feel it was necessary to talk about it. Exactly. Um, they, they were the greatest generation. Yeah. And they just looked at it. It's like, well, you know, everyone, you know, did their part. You know, all these guys fought. You know, I just went over there. I had a job to do. I went and did it. And then I came back and I got on with my life. You know, like no no big right. deal. Exactly. <laughs> Which is unbelievably amazing that they, they, that they felt, felt that. But they're so humble. And that they're just amazing men who, who, who you know, preserve freedom that we enjoy today. I mean, I just can't imagine your dad, everything he saw and everything he did, how he kept that to himself up until, like you said, 94, and then talking about it. Because to me, just what you've told me and what I've heard, and I'm sure the book is fascinating because now you have a, a, a basis to go interview people that were also in the same situations that your dad was in. Now, a lot of the stories that your dad told, were you able to um, collaborate with um, other people that were were genu- telling the same story? Well, yes, I have letters from a lot of the, the people that hit him during the war, his Belgium helpers. But I probably wouldn't have written the book if it wasn't for uh, Dr. Paul Delahaye, who I mentioned, and Jacques Lalo. Uh Those two gentlemen were young boys during the war, and they were greatly affected by it. Uh, they saw firsthand the atrocities committed by the Nazis against their family and friends. Right. And later in life, they became local historians, and they interviewed all these Belgian people and members of the Belgium underground about events that took place 
involving my dad and his crew, and they documented their testimony, and they gave me unbelievably detailed information about events that took place that would have been lost forever without their dedicated research. So I, I just owe them a huge, huge debt for what they did. Dr. Delahaye died in uh, 2013, but Jacques Lowe is uh, still with us, and uh, they were uh, Jacques, uh, the dear friend, and uh, Dr. Delahaye was a dear friend of my dad's and, and me. So I, I, I was so fortunate to have so much information uh, about my dad and his crew that, that took place either from my dad, the members of the crew that survived, or Belgium, uh, members of the Belgium underground, or declassified military documents, uh, declassified war crimes reports. So the story of my dad and his crew is all based on firsthand testimony by okay. the people who were involved in the events. So what I what I added to the books was just a lot of uh, historical information and anecdotes about and surrounding the war to put it into context and give it background. So did your the the people that that survived the uh, the uh, Susan Ruth going down? Did your dad was your dad able to get in touch with them and keep contact with them? Yeah, they would get together every now and then. Um, I can remember as, as a little kid, um, sometimes they would come over to the house and uh, I'd be playing in my room and then my parents would make me come out and say hello to uh, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Musial or, you know, Mr. and Mr. Daniel. But, you know, back then, you know, I, I was more interested in my little toys and uh, as, uh, them, but uh, I, I did meet them. So they, they did keep in touch. Um, when you, whenever you spoke to them, were they reluctant to tell you about what happened, or was there enough time passed that they felt that they could tell the story too? Well, I really didn't get anything firsthand in an interview with them. Okay, uh, most of the the information I got from them was through memoirs that they wrote and uh, letters that they wrote uh, during or after the war or interviews, uh, uh, one of the, uh, my dad's waist gunners, Joe Musial, when they went over for the dedication of the, of the memorial, he videoed the whole thing and they would talk. And, and so I have hours of this videotape that uh, the guys would talk about uh, what happened uh, and what they went through individually. So I mean, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have that. So even though I didn't interview them personally, yeah, I have written documents or video of them talking about what took place. Wow. Uh, you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, WLDJ-FM 107.5, Newcastle. And we're streaming online at HOFMRadio.com. And we're also at Delmarva Talk Radio in Delmarva, Delaware. And we're streaming online at italknet.com. And also we can be seen locally in the Fayette County area at FayetteCountyTV.org and Fayette County TV on Channel 77. Boy, that's a mouthful. It gets longer every week. On the phone right now <laughs> with me, I have Steve Snyder. I always wanted the program to go bigger and bigger. It just it gets more and more to say every week. Um, so, Steve, you, you spoke to me before we got started this evening, and you said that you actually had the opportunity to speak with the gentleman or one of the gentlemen who shot your father's plane down. 
Yes. Um, unbelievable. Uh, all my dad knew and all the U.S. military knew that my dad's plane was attacked by two German Focke-Wolf fighters. And that's all I knew, and that's all I thought I'd ever know. Right. But uh, when I was doing my research, one day my wife, uh, Glenda, just said, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? Like, it was no big deal. And I'm thinking, no, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's naive, <laughs> a stupid idea. Right. But I, like a good husband, you know, I did what my wife told me to do. And uh, lo and behold, I found... Uh, one of the pilots, Hans Berger, who became a translator after the war, so he speaks perfect English. And he was one of the two German pilots uh, that attacked my dad's plane. As I mentioned, Hans Berger, uh, his plane crashed and he was killed. Uh, and actually, the gunners on my dad's plane shot Hans Berger down. So they shot each other down at the same time. Okay. And... Uh, uh, Finding Hans was unbelievable. Uh, I was so excited. I, I'm excited just talking about it. And we've become good friends. He's the only person from the shot down story who's still living. Uh, Hans is 96 years old, wow. lives in Munich, Germany. Um, and I've visited him a couple times over there. The last time was just this last uh, September. We went to the Hofbrau house and uh, <laughs> had a couple augustiner beers and uh we we've become good friends and it's just uh uh one of the highlights in my life finding him actually so when you talk to hans about the situation of of shooting your your father down now i can imagine he he took down a lot of of u.s planes and allied planes but he was able to remember the time that he took down the the Susan Ruth because he was shot down at the same time. Yes, I mean he really can't. Re he doesn't remember you know the details. He just remembers that he attacked this B seventeen. Okay, and uh, he was shot down and he had to bail out. And because Belgium was occupied by the Germans at that time, you know, after he bailed out, he was picked up by the Germans and then sent back to his uh, his base at base at Dortmund. Uh, Germany. Actually, Hans was shot down three times and, and made it through the war. Wow. And yeah, he, he, he said it was uh, unfortunate that they had to be shooting against each other, uh, at each other, but yeah, that was war. He was pretty much like the U.S. airman. You know, he was a young guy, 20 years old, fighting for his country, you know, trying to do a job and trying to stay alive. How old, and I did ask you this, how old was your dad when he was shot down? Well, my dad was an old guy, relatively. Okay. He was 28. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most of the officers were in their early 20s. Okay. And most of the gunners were in their teens, either 18, 19 years old. Okay. Um, but my dad was, was uh, he's considered an old old guy, you know, grandpa, the old man at 28. <laughs> um, I, find that, I find that really interesting. So was he, when he went into the service... Did he enlist, or was he drafted? Well, as a result of the first peacetime draft implemented in the fall of 1940 by President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, my dad, uh, you know, uh, registered uh, in 
and went into the uh, army in April of 1941. Okay. And as I as I mentioned, you know, he was in the army for for a year, and then he got married to my mother, Ruth Hempel, and and in July of 41. And then Pearl Harbor got bombed by Japan in December on December 7th of 1941. And my mother was pretty, uh, you know, concerned about it, the, the future. So she went up to visit my dad over Christmas in Washington, Fort Lewis, Washington, where he was based. And then nine months later, my oldest sister, Susan Ruth, was born. Okay. And so my dad was, he didn't think he could support his you know, new bride and little baby on the way on a private's pay in the army. So that's when he decided to volunteer for the air force where he could make some more money, especially if he could make it through pilot training, become an officer. Right. Okay. And that's how he got into the air force. Um, so, and I didn't know that. So he was, he, he named the plane that he was in the B-17. Yeah. Um, as the first pilot and the commander of the plane and the crew, the, the first pilot had the last say um, of the 10 man crew. Uh, three were married, but only my dad was the only member of the crew that had a child. Okay. And so they, uh, a crew kind of, you know, came together and uh, uh, agreed on what to name the plane. Although the, the pilot had the, the first pilot had the last say. And, and it's, it's very interesting about, you know, that was called nose art back there back at that time and it uh, the air force was the only entity that allowed their planes to be named and painted the the marines didn't uh, the navy didn't nor the any other country but the air force thought it would help the morale of these young guys uh, if they could name and paint their plane and they were really creative in what they did, <laughs> named and painted their planes you know a lot of times it was a cartoon character right. but more often than not it was a scattily clad or most often a nude woman <laughs> right <laughs> you know after all these guys are in their late teens and early 20s and very young men and they wanted to uh that's you true. Know, remember what they were fighting for that's back right. home that's right so after after talking to everybody and doing your research and that is there a story that sticks out uh more than any other one oh i i i guess well, really, the things that stick out the most are you know, finding the Hans Berger okay. and getting to know him and becoming friends. And uh, the next thing would be the uh, tremendous courage of the Belgian people that helped my dad and other downed airmen. And then the brave being uh, courage of my father to decide to come out of hiding you know he could have just hunkered down and waited for the u.s troops to come up uh through france after d-day to get back in the fight and 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 risk his life one thing i know those those are and and also also just uh going to belgium and visiting all these places where that history took place which is just i've been in these uh, houses, these farms, the rooms inside those mm-hmm. buildings where my dad was hidden, and to be there, you know, seventy-five years later, where he stayed, right, uh, is pretty incredible. What I what I think is interesting, and and you you mentioned the one time where he he didn't speak French, he didn't speak German, and he runs into the uh, the 
the two uh, the two Nazis with the two women coming out of the cabaret. Did your father have other face-to-face encounters with the Nazis? Because I think what's interesting about it, for someone that did not know the language of either French or German, he was able to pick it up. And was he able to convince or confuse the Nazis that he knew what he was talking about without stumbling? Well, uh, what... One of the, the, the places, the, the homes where he stayed for lengthy periods of time, uh, next door there was a young girl, 16-year-old girl named Mimi Gabriel, who could speak English. Okay. So they would, they would play Monopoly, they'd play cards, they'd do crosswords, and she taught him how to speak conversational French. So by the time he hooked up with the French resistance, he could speak conversational French. You know, and, and that's another thing that's pretty amazing because here he goes, well, I want to hook up with this uh, French resistance unit. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he, he comes to this unit and these guys have been fighting, you know, they're Frenchmen, uh, Belgium or Algerians, some of them in, in his group. And they go, here's this guy. They don't know him from Adam. So, yeah. He had to prove himself to them. You know, he, it, they're going, well, who is this guy, this American guy that wants to, to join us? I, 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 I mean, that that's, that's pretty amazing. Were the, the people that joined, was he the only American in that group? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because to me, to me yeah. that is just amazing because he bad, basically had to, at least for those seven months, had to adopt adopt another culture and assimilate into it so he wasn't different than anybody else because you know how certain things are. People stick out like a sore thumb, and he couldn't do that because they would be targeted. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my dad, uh, he, he, was, he was six foot three, and there's there's... All, over 200 time period pictures uh, in the book, in the print book, so okay. you can visualize everything you're reading about. But there's all these pictures of my dad and these, you know, the, the, the Belgium and French people, and they're all come to his shoulder. So, he's, <laughs> you know, he kind of stuck out. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you can't really hide when you're the tallest one in the group. But yeah, I can... <laughs> yeah. And you know he did for you know they gave him civilian clothes and he wore a beret right and after the war and throughout his life he always liked to wear a beret it reminded him of of of, of those times but uh, he did have uh, some up close and uh, encounters you know when he was fighting with the uh, French resistance when which as I mentioned they were described in the book when he when he uh when he was there and i i i keep hearing bicycle over and over again was that the main mode of transportation that he had a bike from place to place there were no motor vehicles was that because the nazis basically removed that from the belgian society because they did they wanted to be able to keep control of them oh yeah yeah you, you could not own a car uh, well, back then, hardly anyone had uh, a car. You know, back in uh, you know in in the early forties, right? Because you had to be pretty rich to have a car back then, especially uh, in Europe. So they they were the cars were conf- confiscated unless you had if you were a civilian and had some like important administrative job. Okay. So most people, you know, rode rode bicycles. Because um, that... actually, when the uh, 
what I was going to say that actually in England at the time, you know, uh, that when the Eighth Air Force was there, that was the main means of transportation by all these air air crews was was bicycles to go from the base into the little local village. Mm-hmm. Um, after after doing all this, did you ever ask your dad if he felt that he was not going to make it? back to the U.S. while he was involved in the French resistance? Or did he always have the mindset that he was going to make it back home again? Well, I think one thing, uh, again, back at that time, uh, most of the country uh, had a strong belief in God. Okay. And uh, had a strong faith. My, my my parents were both strong Christians, and so they, you know, they they prayed and and relied on God that that if things would work out. So it, it just yeah they they just did what they had to do and hoped everything would work out for the best. So I noticed that you talk about the book and you um you actually speak out about it. Whenever you talk about it and you do your public speaking engagements, how do people respond? Oh, uh, it's 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 very rewarding. Um, uh, except for this year with the coronavirus. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I typically go all travel all around the United States, uh, to going to air shows, signing copies of my book, and then do a lot of public speaking and presentations to all sorts of different groups. And as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, I'm actually past president, current president of the 306 Bomb Group Historical Association. My dad uh, was in the 306 Bomb Group uh, stationed at Thurlight, England, uh, which is about 60 miles north of London. During World War II, there was about 40 bomb groups in the 8th Air Force. And it's our duty, uh, or it's our mission as the Historical Association, and it's really my mission uh, doing what I do to remember the air war over Europe, to honor the men who fought it, and to educate the public about it. Because, you know, the, the World War II ended 75 years yeah. ago, and it's fading in people's memory, and we cannot let that happen. The, the sacrifice and the courage and bravery that these guys demonstrated to uh you know save the world basically from from tyranny and to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy today can never be for, forgotten and that that's why i do what i do so with the groups that come and and you you sign books for in that are you noticing it's it's a certain age group because I fear because I'm in my my early 50s and my grandfather was, uh, like I said, he was in the Marines during World War II. My father-in-law, who recently passed away this, well, actually it'll be a year this June, um, at the age of 93, he was in the Navy and he was involved in World War, 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 WW2, I can say it tonight, honest. And um, the, the, because it's so far removed, like you said, 75 years ago, that the younger generations don't understand the importance of this time period? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the the generation that really do understand are 
people like me and you that had a you know knew a veteran who fought in the war, right? Whether it's uh, a, fa- a father, an uncle, a cousin, you know, a grandfather. Um, but t- today's youth, uh, and it's just with you know technology and social media and and, and this everything, you know, just aren't aware. Uh, they don't teach it like they used to in right. school. They don't understand that the the life they have today is because of those men who fought and died years ago. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 it's a, a frustrating thing, um, but uh, it's, it's something that I, 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 I try to do. And, and it, it's very gratifying when, you know, young people coming up to me and buy a copy of my book, and they're interested in World War II. They're interested in war and learning about history. Um, where I'm sitting at right now, I am 13 miles away from the birthplace of George C. Marshall in the reunification plan because he was born in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, and it because of of that history that I have here in my area. Some more people know about it. Unfortunately, the younger generations, the younger you go back, they're not taught it. And I think it's very important that, that we do teach it because they need to understand where we've come from and how we've gotten into the situation that we're in now so we never re, we never relive history. We don't go back and remake our mistakes that we had before. So I think it's a very important time period in our lives. And just hearing a story coming from your dad who was actually there from the US side went fought eight missions the eighth mission eighth mission he was shot down and yet he was able to pull himself together was saved by Belgians um, the young men who saved him and then was shuttled from place to place before he got to the to do the fighting of uh, the French resistance is just amazing to me because you don't hear stories like that in today's settings no no not 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 at all not at all yeah it's it's uh it, it was an incredible story but you know the book is not just about my dad but right. it's about each member of his crew and about all those belgian people that risked their lives to help them and about all the men who fought in the eighth air force and really all the men who fought during world war ii there was no other event in history that affected more people than World War II. Right. 60 million people died. Millions more were wounded. Millions more were left homeless and displaced. It changed the course and um, uh, of America and the world forever. So we just cannot forget their sacrifice, and it's, it's our duty to remember. When you interviewed some of the people that, that helped your father, what type of what what were they communicating to you? Were were they doing it because they felt they had to do it? Did they talk about them being fearful? Were they not fearful? What message did they give you when you talked to them? The people who helped my father, they were so grateful. And actually, I can speak specifically for the Belgian people, but the people in the Netherlands and northern France feel similar is that, I mean, their countries were occupied by the Nazis and went and were under Nazi oppression for four years. And they felt 
they still feel that it was just incredible that here you have these Americans or the British or Australians or Canadians, whoever, you know, risk their lives to come help them free their countries from Nazi occupation. So they, they, oh, they feel such a debt and to this day are so grateful and so thankful for the Americans or the allies uh, coming to liberate their country. And they do a great job of educating the younger people about remembering too, you know, much more than the United States because their countries, they, they, they endure the occupation. They saw the, they went through the hardship. The, and the people in the U S especially the younger generation, they never been through any of this. They right. don't realize what can happen. And, and, uh, how good we have it. When you go to Europe, those people, they've, they've lived through that hardship and then they remember it and they'll never forget it. And, and to me, I just cannot, I cannot, um, fathom them, them living through that situation because as you said, we have not had a battle on us soil since the civil war. And that was in such small locations, unlike what was going on through World War II, because, I mean, it was a total occupation of Europe. There was no place that was not involved in that because of the way the invasion was done. And again, having someone to be able to, to work together, band together, and fight the Nazis, and fight that group of individuals that wanted to, to reign tyranny over the world... That was a special group of people from the from the soldiers from the United States to the people that were helping those guys. And they were doing it, risking their lives, because, again, like you said earlier, if they would have been found out, they would have been sent to a a prisoner camp. They would have been either shot, uh, whatever it is, their life would have been totally disrupted. Absolutely. I mean, they lost every freedom that they had. Uh, uh, and they lived in fear uh, for four years. Yeah, you know, seeing friends and family murdered. You know, it's, oh, it, it, it. We we you know we we. It's just hard to uh, to imagine that. You know, even even myself that that I'm so involved in the history of it and appreciate the history of it. You know, I didn't live through that. And again, it's it even just, I can't even imagine. But again, it's just fascinating that you were able to take the letters from your father, the journals, and his actual recollection—not only his, but the other people you talked to—to put together a historical document that can share it with future generations, and actually maybe start conversation um, with younger people to say, "Hey, this is what happened." And it's possible that, unfortunately, it could happen again if we just we're not careful. It could definitely happen again. Yeah. So absolutely. So, Steve, it's hard to believe we've been on the phone for almost an hour now. (laughs) And I really appreciate (laughs) uh, you taking time to talk about the book shot down the true story of the pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. I really appreciate you doing it. Um, the book is available at Amazon.com. I will put a link of it in the uh, description here and of the program on the uh, podcast. And uh, for those of you that are listening to us on the radio, 
go to Amazon.com and look up Shot Down, the true story of the of pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. It will pop right up and you'll be able to purchase the book. And also you can go to Steve's well, website too, come to think of it, stevesnyderauthor.com to find out more information. Yeah, there's a, if somebody wants a, a personally signed autograph book, they can go to my website. There's that on the homepage. Uh, you can uh, order that. And not only is there information on my website about the book, but there's tons of information about the air war over Europe, interviews with veterans, uh, links to all sorts of different archival footage and movies and things. So it, it, it's, a, it's a great research uh, source as well. Well, Steve, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us this evening, and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. I had a had a good time. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, you're very welcome. Hopefully we can talk again soon. Okay. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Bye-bye. You're listening to Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, WLDJ-FM 107.5, Newcastle, and Delmarva Talk Radio, Delmarva, Delaware. And you're listening to us online at italknet.com. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap up this program tonight, and uh, we'll see what's coming up soon. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Well, it's hard to believe it's time to wrap up another program here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Had a wonderful time. Again, Steve Snyder, and the book is called Shot Down, and it's a book about his father and his crew members um, from World War II, the true story of the pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. Um, If you want more information, all you have to do is go to Steve Snyder, author, Again, that's Steve Snyder, that's S-N-Y-D-E-R, author.com. And you can also check out more information by going to Amazon, searching the book's name. It's there, and I'll put all the information in in my uh, show notes if you're listening to the podcast at italknet.com. Guys, I am out of here. You have a great one. We'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander.
If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.